TBC kids, you guys can, uh, you don't have to leave, but you got to get out of this room, so you guys are dismissed. Kiddos to Children's Church, go have fun down there. Hope it's a great time. Thanks, Kirk. <clears throat> Not all at once, you guys are hitting the doors. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and it is uh, um, Interesting when worship can take on a, a different flavor and a different tone uh, when you get news um, like Bill's passing. And so, so all of our condolences, uh, John and Cherry and uh, Brandon too. You guys don't know Brandon is one of our song leaders up here. And uh, just to lead, lead songs for our congregation after receiving that news this morning has got to be a, a heavy load to bear. But uh, our church family is here for you guys. And... Um, a lot of people right around, around the row there. You're in a good, good spot. So, uh, On the other side of this, there's uh, some other interesting news, too. It's, it's, just, it's great how our church family and the dynamics work around here is we do have, I have, my very first wedding that I'm doing in Tulsa next weekend. So uh, Caleb King and Karis Lowry are getting hitched next weekend. So this is, uh, this is kind of on, on one side, you see some aspects happening. On the other side, you see people getting, uh, getting married, and it's really exciting. So if you think about it, pray for Caleb and Karis as they begin their life together. Uh, we've had a chance to go through four sessions of counseling together, premarital counseling. And so Brandy and I just basically tell them all the ways that we messed up. Uh, don't follow in our example in many things. We'll save you some steps just like Solomon is trying to save us some steps in Ecclesiastes, all right? Um, really excited for them, and so if you think about it, pray for, pray for Car- Caleb and Karis. Also, our new October prayer calendars are out in the foyer. Make sure you grab one of those with you if you haven't already, and tuck it in your Bible. If you can pray with TBC in unity on every day of the month, there's something to pray for. There's scripture verses in there as well. Today's scripture verse is Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer that God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, would come on earth and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, so we're going to unify and pray on, on those things as well. Last thing I want to mention before we take a look at Ecclesiastes 2. Every week what I want to do is try to give you some resources uh, that you can use for your study, your personal study, if you are a reader. Uh, last time I mentioned Why Everything Matters, the Gospel in Ecclesiastes by Philip Riken, one guy took me up on the offer, and so here you go, Dennis, man. There, that one's for you. Free gift. Um, the one I've, I've been quoting from a lot, pretty liberally actually, is uh, David Gibson's. It's called Living Life Backward, How Ecclesiastes Teaches Us to Live in Light of the End. And so this cover looks exactly like our sermon cover, just uh, changed a little words, phrases around this is where I got the idea for that cover. This is a really good book. David Gibson has a lot to offer on Ecclesiastes. I would encourage you to pick this up. It's about 10 bucks at Amazon if you don't have the resources. And if you're interested in that, please let me know. And we will provide those for you. And um, again, every week I'm going to try to have something that I give to you guys as a, as a way of a cross-reference or something that you could pursue and, um, and dive in and understand the message of Ecclesiastes a little bit more, all right? I think I've got it all covered. Kids are good, I think we're all right. Let's pray before, again, before we go into Ecclesiastes chapter two. Father in heaven, again, we just ask that you would open our eyes 
to see clearly from your word. Open our ears to hear your truth. Open our hearts to change and to accept the gospel change that you have for us. God, I pray that um, my words would be um, put to the side and your words would be front and clear and steady. Lord, help us to lean, lean on truth and to live by it every step of the way. We ask all of these things through your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, you guys know I share a lot of sermon illustrations from The Lord of the Rings. It's, it's one of my favorite stories of all time, one of my favorite novels. But I don't talk too much about J.R.R. Tolkien himself. And The Lord of the Rings was, was his magnum opus. It was his greatest piece. And as he was getting toward the end of his life, he was really concerned and he, and he got anxious that there was so much time and effort put into this work he was fearful that he might not finish it. It actually took decades and decades to put together the novel, Lord of the Rings, that we have today. Tolkien created fictional languages, scripts and alphabets, all of these other things, all these subplots and major plots, and he was trying to bring it all together. He couldn't figure out how everything was going to ultimately tie together, and he was really concerned. He thought, I might die before the Lord of the Rings is finished. Lord of the Rings is finished. And if you've ever read the novels themselves, you understand exactly why. It's very detailed and it's very descriptive in its tone and its tenor. On top of that, World War II was going on. Uh, Tolkien was one of these guys that lived through the, the uh, war to end all wars, supposedly World War I. But then World War II came about and, and he was about 50 years old at the time. So he wasn't going to be on the on the battlefield during World War II, but he knew that Great Britain was going to be invaded. It was inevitable by that time. And looking at a war-torn country and engaging in all the cutbacks and the things that they were doing in Great Britain at that time, he was again concerned, is he going to be able to finish the story? And it was a very uh, dreadful and almost uh, uh, numbing thought that his masterpiece, that all of the time that he has taken to put the story together would never ultimately be finished. Sometime during his struggle to finish Lord of the Rings, he penned a short story. It's called A Leaf by Niggle. You can go online, it's about a, a 10-page PDF, download a free version of this. And it's really, it's an autobiography of Tolkien struggling with trying to finish something that he started, and something, hopefully, that he would be remembered for. Leaf by Niggle is a story about a painter named Niggle. And Niggle, if, if you don't know, it's one of these old English words. Um, it means, literally, to spend too much time and effort on the details, on the little things, uh, trifling, we might say. Tolkien's short, short story about Niggle the painter was actually his personal story about Tolkien the writer and the novelist. And here's how the story begins. I love it. Here's how the story begins. There was once a little man called Niggle who had a long journey to make, and he did not want to go. The journey that he's referring to is the journey of death, actually. He did not want to go on this journey. Indeed, the whole idea was distasteful to him, but he could not get out of it. He knew he would have to start sometime, but he did not hurry with his preparations. And as a painter, Niggle loved painting the details. 
just like Tolkien loved writing the details of the story. And it's one of his most favorite paintings, the painting that he abandoned all other, other paintings to pursue this one painting was a painting of a single solitary leaf. And he made it with such intricate detail the little spots of dew on this leaf, everything was brought out. It took him forever to finish this one single solitary leaf. And so Niggle said to himself, I don't want to do just, just one leaf. I want to paint an, a whole tree this way. And so he, he created this large canvas in his painting room, so big that he had to set up a ladder to reach the top of this canvas to finish the painting. And he put together and he started on this, this massive tree. That's how the story goes. Um, however, Nigel was often taken from his work. He was distracted. Tolkien describes him as a kind-hearted man. He was always helping other people, and helping other people meant that he couldn't spend time on his masterpiece, and one of the guys that he helped out the most was his neighbor, Mr. Parrish. Mr. Parrish was a lame man. He could only had the use of one leg, and so he often had needs that Nigel would stop and help out with. One fateful night, Mr. Parrish's wife got sick, and so he needed to go fetch a doctor and medicine, and it was a, a very serious sickness, something that couldn't wait. And so Parrish stops by to his neighbor, Niggle, and, and says, can you please go fetch a doctor? I think my wife's life is, is in jeopardy here. And he says, you know what, I'm, I'm really busy on something. I, I, I don't know if I can come away from it, but eventually he steps away. He gets on his yellow bicycle, and he goes out to find a doctor. And it's a, it's a rainy, it's a cold and rainy and a dark night. And all through the night, he spends trying to contact this doctor and bring him back. In fact, the very next day after he had contacted the doctor, he himself, Niggle, got sick, and he died because of it. And it's, it's really sad in the short story that this masterpiece that he was working on, this great canvas with all these detailed leaves on it, would never be finished and here's what he says in the, in the story. Next slide, if you guys don't mind back there. One more for me. I didn't put that one up there. In the short story, he says, Oh dear, said poor Niggle, beginning to weep. It's not even finished. The way the afterlife comes to him is that a driver comes to pick him up. And he has a conversation with this driver. Of course, he's dead by that time. And years later, transpire, and, and somebody gets into the house that Niggle lived in and, and finds this, this canvas. And by the time they find it, all the corners have been uh, worn away. They no longer exist, and there's just this one single solitary leaf that's left. And that's all that anybody will ever remember of Niggle and his painting. Uh, but in the afterlife, Tolkien describes Niggle as hearing two voices— one was the voice of justice. The voice of justice is a severe voice, a harsh voice. And it says that Niggle never accomplished anything in his life. Everything that he put his heart to, he never finished. He couldn't schedule his days right. He couldn't prioritize his schedule and his calendar correctly. Justice was condemning and harsh. Basically said that Niggle just wasted his time. But there was a second voice which was the voice of mercy. And the voice of mercy argued that Niggle actually spent his time doing the things that mattered the most. Caring for people, 
such as his neighbor, Mr. Parrish. Um, Mercy's voice was soft and gentle, but it was strong and it communicated truth in a very clear and undeniable way. And so Mercy ushers Niggle now into another aspect of his afterlife by sending him on a train, and he's got the time to take one bag with him as he goes. He doesn't know where the train is going. He just has one bag, and and the second he gets off this train in front of him in the afterlife, he sees his yellow bike, and it has his name written on it. Joy of all joys. He loved riding his bike. So he gets on his bike, and he finds himself in this, this sun-shining green field, this great hill. And he just crests the hill, and he goes down, and he glides all the way down in the afterlife. And before long, he notices that he's no longer in this, this open green field. is actually on this narrow path. And it's going somewhere, very specific. He's not sure where it's going. But there's this huge shadow in front of him. All of a sudden, this wide open green field, he finds himself on a path, and then this huge shadow. It's so daunting, he doesn't know where it's coming from or or what it is. It's so daunting, he falls off his bike immediately. He stumbles back, and and he stands up. And right off to the side, he sees this enormous tree. It was the tree that he had been painting this whole time. Not an incomplete tree. This tree was full, flourishing tree with all the detailed leaves. Even the details of the blades of grass he's seeing as he looks upon this tree. It was finished. And he gazed. This is what Tolkien writes. He gazed at the tree, and slowly he lifted his arms, opened them wide. It is a gift, he said. Interestingly, we don't know who the voice is that said, is it a gift? Was it Niggle? Was it the person casting the shadow? Of course, Tolkien's a believer, so maybe it is a person. Um, It's a really great story. I've read it three times in the last three days, and because I have a daughter, I weep and I cry more and more now every single time that I write, uh, that I read it. I'm such a softy, because it's, it's all of her fault. To some extent, all of us are just like Niggle. All of us have a masterpiece to paint. All of us have a job to do. Every one of us have something to accomplish. Every one of us wants to do something worthy of remembrance. Everybody wants to make a difference. However, all of us are just like Niggle in that all of us will die in anything we do, whether we accomplished and finished it to its completion or didn't finish it, everything will soon be forgotten. Nothing that any of us will do will be forever remembered in the lives of every single person who would come after us. Um, one of my favorite heavy metal bands, next slide here, Casey, is, uh, is Metallica, and, and I'm not telling you to go listen to Metallica, they're just a favorite of mine they've got a song called Nothing Else Matters, and I think they really capture a lot of sentiment in Ecclesiastes. They say, so close no matter how far, couldn't be much more from the heart. Forever trust in who we are because, forever trust in who we are because nothing else matters. They say, never open myself this way. Life is ours. We live it our way. All these words I don't just say. 
nothing else matters. Or perhaps an illustration from the legendary Steve Jobs. Uh, Next slide. Steve Jobs accomplished more in his garage than I will probably ever accomplish in my entire life. And here's what he said on his deathbed. He said, sometimes I believe in God, sometimes I don't. I think it's 50-50, maybe. But ever since I've had cancer, I've been thinking about it more. And I find myself believing a bit more. Maybe it's because I want to believe in an afterlife. That when you die, it, it doesn't just all disappear. The wisdom that you've accumulated, somehow it lives on. Next slide. Then he paused for a second and he said, yeah, but, but sometimes I think it's just like an on-off switch. Click and you're gone. Notice how Macintosh computers today, Apple computers, they don't have a on-off switch on everything. Even the iPhones don't have a button on the screen like most phones do. If a genius like Steve Jobs, unbelievable innovator, gives his life to his work, accomplishes something great, and dies, wondering if anything will be remembered, if one of the best heavy metal bands of all time, Metallica, gives their life to music and makes an undeniable impression on the the world of rock and roll, if they say nothing else matters and they die, how can there be any meaning whatsoever to our work, to our careers, to the things that we pursue? Why would we pursue anything at all if it's true that nothing else really matters? isn't, Isn't it all pointless? Why go to work? Why wake up and put your pants on and go to work in the first place? Does it matter? Look down at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and I want you to skip down to verse 17. And if you have your Bibles, why don't we do this? Uh, If you don't mind standing, I'm going to read this passage, and we'll, as I'm reading, just uh, stand in honor and respect for God's Word. I'm going to read through the end of chapter 2 here, starting in verse 17. Ecclesiastes 2, 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. I hated all of my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Verse 20. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is but vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. You guys can be seated. 
Next slide for me, Casey, thanks man. Ecclesiastes chapter two. Remember in verses one and two, here's where we're at in the context. Solomon is on a, a quest for meaning. One, uh, one back there, man, sorry. Solomon is on a quest for meaning. This is a very personal autobiographical section, so you're seeing a lot of I's, me, and my pronouns, first-person pronouns in this section. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, Solomon attempted to find meaning in his learning through philosophy. And of course, in all of his learning, he, he came to the understanding that life is meaningless. In chapter 2, 1 through 17, Solomon turned the page now, and he tried to find meaning in pleasure, in hedonism, finding enjoyment in the things in life. There, too, he found it meaningless and vanity of vanities. Now, at the end of chapter 2, verses 18 to 26, Solomon is going to try to find meaning in life through hard work, the good old work ethic, because all of us love a hard-working man, right? All of us love the farmers. You guys remember when the Super Bowl commercial came out about farmers? And the voice in the background, I think it was like, uh, who was the the actor that put that together? It was awesome. It was a car commercial. And they were talking about hardworking farmers. Um, Solomon would say something to the effect of no pain, no gain, almost in an an opposite kind of context. I'm going to say, I'm going to put my heart to toil. I'm going to try to gain something through all of my pain, in toiling, and working, I'm going to give everything I have to a wholehearted effort to work hard. Maybe there I can find fulfillment and enjoyment. Maybe there I can find meaning in life. The end of chapter two is the result of his quest for meaning through hard work. Next slide. We're assuming here, of course, that, that Solomon is Kohelet. He is the preacher that is mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes. And when we read these verses, we can't help but think of the real life of Solomon the king. And this is actually depicted for us in the Old Testament in 1 Kings. And so I want you to hold your place in Ecclesiastes and turn back to 1 Kings chapter 11. This is a fascinating passage, and it's worth um, making a note of this in your margins of your Bible, especially in Ecclesiastes. Solomon became king right at the beginning of, of 1 Kings. In 1 Kings chapter 3 was the passage that he asked for wisdom from God, so God granted it to him. It's just a a wonderful aspect, the ability to see that he needed wisdom as a king that was ruling. In 1 Kings chapter 11, Solomon finally dies. So skip down at the last verse in chapter 11 of 1 Kings, verse 43. As the Old Testament often does, and as the the Chronicles of the Kings often do, does, it, it ends in this way. Solomon slept with his fathers, and he was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Now, Rehoboam is going to be the the son that acquires the kingdom from Solomon, from his father. Of course, you know that Solomon had another son, Jeroboam, that tried to take the kingdom from him. He became an idolater, worshipped golden calves. And so the kingdom wasn't going to go to Jeroboam, it was going to go to Rehoboam instead. And so the first thing that Rehoboam does as king is he takes all the wise counselors that Solomon had set up in his cabinet, you might say, and he asks them for wisdom. What is he to do as king now that Solomon is dead? And the advice from the, the wise counselors that had age and season and life on them was this. Solomon was a taskmaster. He built things. 
He rebuilt the temple and he built up the kingdom of Israel. You need to give the people a break. Take it easy on them. Rehoboam heard that counsel and he said, nah, you know what? I think I'm just going to do what I want to do instead. And chapter 12 is the conclusion that Rehoboam comes to. Look at uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem and made him king. Skip down to verse 6. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer all this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them, speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But, verse 8, he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him, and he took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall speak to the people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. Interesting not to take the advice of the seasoned elders. Verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We want him back. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, house of David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. And the king of Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. It sets up a taskmaster, they stoned him, King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. And look at verse 19. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. It took one chapter, one chapter, for Solomon's son Rehoboam to lose half the kingdom. We would say probably 80% of the kingdom, the northern tribes being separated from the southern tribes, the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. A chapter and he loses the kingdom. Turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Do you kind of feel that sentiment a little bit in Ecclesiastes when we read this passage? Look at verse 17, Ecclesiastes 2, 17. Kohelet says, I hated life because what is done under the sun is grievous to me. Verse 18, I hated my job. I hated my career in which I toil under the sun. Every major translation has hate in verses 17 and 18. This is a strong word in Hebrew. NET is probably one of the only translations that says, I loathed my life and I loathed my toil. Look down at verse 19. Who knows, who knows whether the person that comes after him will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master over all which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This too is vanity. Listen, verse 19 is quintessential Kohelet. 
who knows. He's going to adopt this phrase, who knows, and he's going to use it liberally throughout the rest of the book. Almost every other time this word occurs, this phrase, who knows, occurs in the Old Testament, it's different than Kohelet's use in Ecclesiastes. One commentator says this, Kohelet uses this phrase, who knows, to express utter skepticism. It is a rhetorical comment that demands a negative response. Riken put it this way. Casey, next slide. We can never be totally sure what will happen after we die, but the question, who knows, invites a negative response. With so many fools in the world, chances are that everything will fall into the wrong hands. Listen to Psalm 49, verse 10. For he sees that even the wise person dies, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to somebody else, to others. There's a great principle in Ecclesiastes, great principle in all of life here. Death renders even wisdom foolish. Death will render even wisdom foolish. Why? Because earthly strain is no guarantee of eternal gain. The things we toil from for while we're here on the earth do not necessarily complement what happens in eternity. Number two. Number two in your outline. In a fallen world, there is no rest for the weary. There is absolutely no rest for the weary. Look down at verse 20. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all of the toil of my labors under the sun. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. Uh, Most of your translations will say, say something like, I began to despair or I gave myself up to despair. Literally in Hebrew, I turned about to allow my heart to despair. It's a very awkward idiom when you read it in the Old Testament. Solomon turned from a life that had no despair to now experiencing and living a life that was full of despair as a workaholic. One commentator says that this means Solomon became disillusioned with his work and his career path. Another, that Solomon resigned himself to an unchangeable fact in life that whatever he does is just going to lead to more and more despair. Look down at verse 23. All his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart doesn't rest. And this also is vanity. Notice how inclusive and absolute Kohelet describes his life. All his days. Not some of them. Everything he does. All of his days lead him to despair. But the end of the verse, end of verse 23, is is the kicker. Even at night, his heart doesn't rest. Those those who work hard, if I just ask you to raise your hand, if you're a hardworking guy, hardworking woman out there, you know that a good night's rest is sometimes the most beautiful thing that you can ever experience, right? Just laying your head on the pillow. I gave everything I had today. I'm resting in peace and comfort. I think Kansas was probably the one place that Brandy and I lived where we experienced hard work ethic more than we have ever experienced it before. Um, All the farmers that we met had shoulders like out to here and hips that were like down to here, and they were just massive hard-working guys. If, If it was harvest time in Kansas, first of all, they reordered the school year so that teenagers who were in school at the time could come home and work the harvest with mom and dad on the farm. 
because it was that hard and it was that demanding. These guys would go all through the night with the lights on, on their combines, putting it from the combine to the truck, truck to the silo, back in the truck, back to the combine, keep on going. We were, I was in a CB one time, I was in a, a combine with one of our guys in Kansas. And he, and he clicks on his CB and he says, hey, I'm ready for the truck. And I said, Leland, Farmer Lee, who are you talking to? Oh, that's my wife. She's driving the truck today. So she gets in the truck, she pulls up the truck, and they unload this corn. As the, as the combine is going, it's emptying the grain into the truck at the same time. She pulls off and goes. About 30 minutes later, he gets back on the radio. Is lunch ready yet? Leland, who are you talking to? Oh, that, that's my wife. She gets off the truck, makes everybody lunch, and then she comes back out to the field to feed us lunch. And we keep working, and we eat at the same time. I had this one guy, I, uh, maybe he'll, I'll text him and tell him to listen to the sermon. His name was Donnie Hamilton. Owned a trucking outfit, big cattle guy in Kansas. And he told me this story when I first got to Kansas. It was, it was unbelievable. He says to me, he says, Jared, <clears throat> when I was really little and, and somewhat foolish, I wanted to see how many hours I could work in the day and still be productive and stand upright. And so he gave himself a test. And he started with seven hours of sleep at night, then he decreased it an hour, went to six hours of sleep at night, he still functioned pretty well, decreased it an hour, went to five hours of sleep at night, went to four hours of sleep, went to three hours of sleep at night, down to two hours of sleep for a while. So you know what, I think I can still go on two hours of sleep every single day. He looks me in the eye and he says, here's what I found out, Jared. He said, if I get about three and a half or four hours of sleep at night, I'm good to go for the rest of the day. I'm like, Donnie, you're crazy. You're not good to go. Like, that is absolutely crazy, man. But that's just the hard work ethic that he pursued. Even when we rest, our heart can't rest because we think about all the toil that needs to be done. Listen to what, what Solomon is saying. Even in the night, verse 23, his heart does not rest, and this also is vanity. It was the ancient Greeks who believed that work itself was a, was a curse to humans. They tasked work to the humans to make them do what they didn't want to do themselves. It was understood as nothing but a curse. Aristotle, great philosopher, said that unemployment, by which he meant the ability to live life without having to go to work every single day, said unemployment was a primary qualification for a genuinely worthwhile life because you didn't have to work. Plato argued in one of his dialogues that being in the body hampers the soul's quest for truth. Where do we work? How do we work? In our bodies, exerting our toil day in and day out. Most of us conclude that, that work is a necessary evil, especially lower status, lower paying jobs, kind of an assault to our dignity. But at the end of, of chapter two, the tone really shifts. All of a sudden we get a little bit of a different flavor from, from Kohelet. Look at verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in all of his toil. And this also I saw 
is from the hand of God. This is the first time we've seen the name of God in Ecclesiastes since chapter 1, verse 13. And he comes back almost with a, with a glimmer of hope here. And then in verse 26, the person who knows God, who has a relationship with God, is divided. The, all humanity is divided into two groups of people. In verse 26, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. And this also is vanity. How many of you guys are miserable in your jobs? Don't, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. And that, by the way, that wasn't me saying I was miserable in my job either. All right? We, we struggle with this. And this next generation, this postmodern generation that's coming up, is really going to struggle with this one on our careers and on our jobs. Philip Jensen asks a really good question. He says, if God came into the world, what kind of job do you think he would have done? What kind of career path would the all-infinite, almighty God have chosen? If he was an ancient Greek, the God probably would have been a philosopher king, one of the greatest thinkers in, in royalty at the time. If he was a Roman, God probably would have been a noble statesman a just ruler who knew the people and ruled for the people. Remember what the God of the Jews came to the world to do? The carpenter. Probably a stonemason in Jerusalem. There's, there's no wood over there if you ever take a trip. They work on stones. You ever seen a bricklayer work before? Jesus was probably a bricklayer. No task is too small to hold the immense dignity of work that God has given to it. No task is too small to hold the immense dignity of work that is given to it by God. Physical blue-collar labor is God's work no less than the theologian and the pastor. And he takes great delight when we do even the most seemingly meaningless jobs with dedication and passion for his glory and for his significance. And so I just want to end with, uh, what's really needed here is a theology of work, right? And Solomon touches on it just a little bit, but I want to end with just a couple points. This is going to be quick because we've got the Lord's Supper coming in just a second. Um, first thing I want to conclude with, all work is not merely a job, but it is a calling. All work is not merely a job, it is a calling. You know the Latin word for call? It's vocare. Have you heard the word vocation before? Our vocations are a calling from God. Today, vocation simply means a job, but it was not always that way. In every language, it is not always so. The reformers were very adamant, the Protestant reformers, that the entire world should be full of service to God not only in the churches, but also in the home, in kitchens, in cellars, in workshops, and in the field. And let me just add, in the offices, in the political houses, 
driving a truck around. Do it for the glory of God because that is the calling that God has given you. Here's Solomon's point. The reward for our work is not the profit and it is not the game or the observable outcome. The reward for our work is the work itself. Biblically speaking, work is a gift and it is a calling from God. Number two, we must pursue work as something beyond merely our own self-interests. We must pursue work as something beyond merely our own self-interests. Right? I was just talking to a guy a couple weeks ago. Uh, met for coffee in the morning, and, and he said late in life, you know, later in life, he had a career change. And every day he was coming home and he was dumping stuff on his wife. I said, you know what? Maybe it's time to think about a, a, new, a new career, a new job. Just find something that when you come home, you'll be happy doing it, right? All of us kind of have these experiences of life, but, but work is something that we pursue not merely for our own self-interest. It's something we pursue as a calling for God. It is not a means of self-fulfillment, self-realization, or self-gratification. God has given us a good work to do. And we do, all of us do this work knowing that the hardest job ever done and ever completed was done for us by the only person who could carry out that work. When Jesus took up the work of the cross, he did it perfectly and he did it completely. He painted the canvas. And when he was done painting, there was a great and a glorious tree down to the details, he painted a tree. And his work was completely finished. He did the work. He carried the weight for us so that we don't have to. And at the end of the day, all of us will step back from our lives because of that and say, it's a gift. It is a great gift. There are two specific people mentioned in verse 26 of Ecclesiastes 2. There is the one who pleases God, and there is the sinner. Solomon, I, I, I think, in, in Jesus by application in the truth of the gospel, is saying, if you are not doing your work to please God, repent come to a full change of mind about that and pursue the person who gives every single job dignity and worth and value. And at the end of the day, we will all see the canvas. Remember Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he has prepared for us beforehand, right? a theology of work. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We might hear a song coming up in Ecclesiastes 3 next time we're here. Uh, so if, if you like to listen to music during sermons, come on next time. If you've read ahead, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 